In just a moment, I'll be reading um, Hosea chapter 11, the first uh, nine verses, in chunks, in pieces, as we work our way through um, this message from this chapter. But I wonder, as you're sitting here this morning, have you ever wondered about the severity of hell? Have you ever wondered about eternal punishment? Eternal. Is, is that necessary? Is that appropriate? Or is that cruel and unusual punishment? If you feel that God's wrath is exaggerated uh, by the biblical teaching of hell, uh, you don't really see Him as good and holy and righteous nor do you see sin as that serious. But on the other side, we also can be casual about the grace that He's given to us. We can be ho-hum about grace. It's nice, but it's not amazing anymore. It doesn't grip us the way perhaps it once did, or we suspect that it should. We may have a cool presumption about God's grace. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes the attitude that we have and really where it comes from if we are casual about grace or if we are even mildly offended about hell. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. You often, and I'm actually changing a couple of things. I think he kind of overstates some things, if I may humbly restate the doctor. Uh, You often won't feel you are a sinner. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always defend you against every accusation. We're all on very good terms with ourselves. We can always put up a a good case for ourselves. And even if we try to make ourselves feel we're sinners, we won't do it. There's only one way to know that we're sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. Sin blinds us to the beauty and the glory of God. Sin is blinding. We don't feel the weight or the ugliness of sin because we are blinded by our sin. We don't feel the wonder of grace or the tenderness towards us because of Christ because we're not that needy. And yet... As we unfold this passage today, I want to encourage you that whatever guilt or shame that you may feel, whatever hesitancy you may have in being honest with God, you can be met with and overwhelmed overwhelmed by abounding grace. Where sins increase, grace abounds all the more. So let's run home. Our purpose then, in a sentence, is let God's compassion stir up in you joyful, joyful obedience. Let God's 
compassion stir up for you joyful obedience. I want to look at uh, I want to look at the first uh, several verses here as we consider what sin actually deserves from the Father. What what sin deserves from God? Sin is in these first four verses we will see sin is against the Father's kindness. When Israel was a child, Hosea eleven one through four. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, for they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. I bent down to them and fed them. God called Israel um, out of Egypt, but the more he called to them, the harder their hearts became as they would give themselves over to idolatry, which is really a description of their history. He taught them to walk by giving them the Ten Commandments. He healed them. He cared for them. He provided for them. But they were amazingly oblivious to his presence. Even though he drew them with cords of love, he eased their burdens, he fed them, their hearts were hard. And with all of this then, there is a well-deserved justice that hovers over them like the sword of of Damocles. Um, Verses 5 through 7. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he will not raise them up. At all. This is God's justice. They will have in their future something worse than Egypt in some way or other, even going to the, uh, being taken over by the Assyrians, it will be worse. And because they, instead of listening to God's commands, do what they want, their enemies will rage against them. They bend, their hearts bend away from God. And so he will cover his ears when they call out to him. Today, too, uh, people have rejected God as their maker and deserve hell, deserve his wrath. But we, too, must be aware that we have often rejected our husband. And we're guilty, too. And we know it. What sin deserves from the Father is justice. But then look with me at verse 8. What stirs, what our sins stir up in the Father's heart. Here we see an internal conflict in God's heart. As one commentator put it, there is a gracious debate within him. There is a tension between justice and mercy. There is a debate going on between it, within God himself. Verse 8, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This, this conflict within God, there is justice, there is justice that must be poured out. And yet my heart is tender and warm. Now, as we even hear that text, we can think, oh, wow, that seems theologically a little bit shaky. It doesn't sound quite quite right. We have a doctrine called the impassibility of God, which means that he does not have fluctuating emotions like we do. His emotions do not go up and then down and and then move all over the place. He is sovereign. His foreknowledge is firm and certain. Sometimes it may be that as we seek to overanalyze the text and come out with certain doctrines, we, while they may be true, we squeeze out the beauty and the drama of history and the beauty and drama of God's heart. There is raw emotion here. My heart is changed within me. My heart recoils. My compassion grows warm and tender. I can't act according to justice because it is against the stirring of my warm compassion. Imagine a father with a a well-loved son who goes wayward and there is a conflict in that father's heart. He deserves punishment. He may even deserve to go to jail. But that disturbs me. He's my son. I want there to be compassion and mercy towards him. Well, how does God resolve this tension? Do you hear the tension, first of all? Justice, but then a heart also of compassion. How does he resolve that? Remember that there was an angel that appeared to Joseph and said, take the child, run to Egypt. Herod is coming after. He wants to kill the child. And so uh, Joseph takes Mary and the child uh, down to Egypt so that the scripture of Hosea 11.1 1 could be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son, Jesus, the true Israelite, who kept God's commands perfectly and who fulfilled all righteousness for you. Now, theologians distinguish between what we call um, uh, God's um, or, or Jesus' passive obedience and his active obedience. Passive obedience being his suffering um, and his death, which leads to forgiveness, which empowers forgiveness. His passive obedience, suffering, death provide for forgiveness. His active obedience. His perfect life enables God not only to declare us forgiven, but righteous. Uh, One of my dear brothers in this church gave me a little book about about, uh, J. Gresham Machen. And I was reminded as I was looking through that this past week of, of of, of the telegram that Machen sent to a colleague, John Murray, at Westminster Seminary. Right before he died, the 1st of January, uh, 1937. 
And this is what Machen said in that telegram. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. But brothers and sisters, if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you may also say, I am thankful for the active obedience of Christ and it is my glorious hope. You see, sometimes um, we can feel uh, that our sins cause God's grace to shrink. Um, our, our sins uh, can cause God's uh, favor uh, towards us to wither. Uh, no, my dear friends, our sins, and this passage is almost breathtaking in its scope, no, our sins actually uh, cause God's grace and mercy to us to grow, Amen. to deepen as He embraces us. You see, we misunderstand grace. We misunderstand grace. We think of it more as a, a substance. It's a treasure that God spoons out as we do acts of obedience, as we read our Bibles, as we go to church, uh, as we take the Lord's Supper, all very good and important and, and things, but we be sometimes believe that in our doing of them, God is giving us this substance called Grace, and that and that really is reflects that 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 we naturally and instinctively behave much according to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which is the idea that you come to church uh, with a bucket, if you will, and you come to the church, and the church turns on the spigot, and through the sacraments and and that fluid, that substance. Is, is poured into your into your bucket, and then you then you go out and you you lose some of that some of that grace because you've got holes in the bottom of that bucket. And that is a hopeless way to live, people, because the leaks show up before you even leave the church that morning. You're dripping out of your bucket. Grace is not a substance. Grace is not a thing. Grace is a person. It is the person of Jesus. And Jesus is with you. He is for you. And He is in you. He is your bridegroom. And when you sin, His heart is drawn out towards you in kindness and compassion. The heart of God grows warm and tender in your weakness and sins. He is not hardened against you, but He is for you even more. Now, we need to be persuaded of that, don't we? That's, that's an outrageous concept. What will the Lord do to help us to grasp that? How can He get that through us, through to us? It's just not the way we think. Look with me at verse 9. Um, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy, destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come in wrath. 
You see, our problem is that we instinctively make God in our image. And we think of Him as a bigger model of ourselves. And that He acts something like the way we do. Well, how do we act when we've been sinned against? For us, judgment typically, at least initially, wins the day. Someone has sinned against us, perhaps even a small slight. Or an imaginary slight. And that ignites all kinds of anger. And and it creates distance and rejection. When God says His compassion grows warm and tender even as we sin. As we read this text, it seems like deep down we expect one little word to be different as we again read verse 9. For I am, am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will come in wrath. That's the way we instinctively want to read that. But because He is holy, because He is God, He will not come in wrath against His children. He is not like us. Thank God He is not like us. He is merciful when we are not. He is gentle when we are brutish. He is kind when we are stubborn. Mercy. Thank God. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is the nature of God. We again expect that the purer the heart, the more holy the person, the more repulsed that person is by sin, and the more he retracts himself from us. But the purer the heart, the more one is moved to help you and to comfort you. And Christ has the purest of all hearts. He knows, He well knows the horror of sin, but He is still drawn to you. Your sins stir up His warm compassion. As parents, those of you who are not parents, just imagine that you have a child and you see that child being drawn into sin. I'll let your imagination take you where it will right now. Imagine what is the worst thing that you could, you could come up with. Imagine your child is going in that direction. And you realize his or her life could face ruin. They've been seduced by sin. Do you get angry with that child? Do you get angry with him? Remember, God is not like us. Or does your um, heart become stirred with compassion, in particular because of this dangerous seduction of sin? That's the nature of our God. I want to point out two things uh, for, uh, for application this morning. Uh, two things that um, will draw out of this uh, God's compassionate heart. And one is simply that, that you would trust the Father's welcoming heart. That you would trust, fully trust, by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, the Father's welcoming heart. That sin does move God more to pity than to anger against you. Do you hear that? God's heart is moved more to pity 
than to anger. And consider this, that sin is your greatest misery. Sin brings trouble between you and people. Sin brings turmoil into your own heart. It is your biggest enemy. And so all the more your sin stirs up his pity. Uh, your judgment fell on Christ and he is, on, he is in you and, and on your side. And so he sides, listen to this, he sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. Think for a moment. I want you to remember the story of the prodigal son. Let's even call him the prodigal father. You see that word prodigal means recklessly extravagant and lavishly abundant. I guess you could say that about the son as he is recklessly throwing money around, but it more accurately describes the heart of the father who is recklessly extravagant in grace and who is lavishly abundant in his heart towards his son. And he sees the son running, uh, coming to him and he runs to the son and the son begins to repent. The father stops him midway through the repentance and he covers him with kisses. He gives kisses him again and again and again. He shows the son his privilege of sonship by offering again his room. He can go back to his room in the house. He, he gives him those, those righteous robes and a celebrative meal. He, can't, he cannot stop overflowing with generosity to his son. So what does your father want most? He wants you to stay home and enjoy the banquet. He wants you to stay home with Him and to enjoy the spread of mercy and kindness in the, in the Word of the Lord Jesus Christ that He gives you. And that will affect you. That the mature Christian, the mature Christian who knows the Father's compassion and knows the Father's welcome will allow by the Spirit His guard to drop and for him to be the lead repenter in his home. For him to be the first one to acknowledge to wife, to children, if you're not married, to friends. He'll be the first because his heart has been softened by the compassion of the Father. It's the first thing he's going to find when the Spirit is at work in you Repentance will no longer be gut-wrenching, but will be a release. And the second thing is, you will enjoy the banquet of grace much more naturally. You will enjoy the banquet of grace. You've come to trust the Father's welcoming heart. And secondly you will then abide uh, in the love of Christ. I, I was in, in, a, in our gathering this past Wednesday, we were looking at John 15, and I just, I can't get that out of my mind. Uh, abide in the love of Christ. Now, it's easy to downplay that. I've heard even mature Christians say, I got that. Can we move on from love? <laughs> Jesus says, no, no. no. It, the more mature you are, the more you revel in the love of Jesus. As John 15 says, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you, period. Abide in my love. Stay there. 
remain. Lock in. Fasten your eyes upon the gracious face of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, that His love and the outrageous love that He has for you and for sinners becomes the environment in which you live. I want you to luxuriate in the love of Jesus. Jesus says, and that will enable you or cause you to bear fruit. Not only bear fruit, but bear much fruit and bear abundant fruit. Gaze upon Jesus. Um, Abide in Jesus, he says, and you will bear much fruit. Abiding in the vine, of course, enables us or causes us, empowers us to draw nourishment that does produce love. Here's what love does in the human heart. It begins to uncoil the twistedness and the confusion of your heart. You can be so wrapped up in stuff like revenge, in in petty things like offenses that, that you perceive that others have against you or that you do have against them. Your heart can be so tightly wound with self-centeredness that you are not a free person. It brings confusion into your heart. And, 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 yet, and yet the love of Jesus uncoils your heart so that you're able to love your enemies, even those who differ from you. You're able to love. Luxuriating in the love of Jesus then gives you, um, and, and the love of Jesus gives you that fruit, that abundant fruit of love, first of all, but also of peace. And as I, this, this, as our nation is now embroiled in um, blindness, um, in selfish hatred, what, what do we call all that we see going on around us? People, people bearing arms against, against one another. There, there is a lack of, of peace of heart and a lack of peace with God. And as we consider the love of Jesus, then that peace that passes understanding invades our own hearts and we're able to live as sojourners here, as sojourners here, not at, at peace with the corruption and, and the lying and the unrighteousness that is around us, but still peace with God and a peaceful demeanor that enables us to be people of prayer and people of service and people of open joy in our peace. Luxuriate in the love of Jesus and you will bear much fruit, love and peace. At luxuriate in the love of Jesus. And, and Jesus goes on to say in John 15, uh, that you, you will have much joy. I'll give you. Will, you will enter into my joy, and your joy will be full. As you focus upon and meditate on the love of Jesus, the tender, compassionate love of Jesus, your joy will be full. Does your heart somehow and sometimes grow cold to the beauty of Jesus? Do you sometimes feel just kind of spiritually dead and dull of mind and heart? Perhaps you feel hopeless and fearful both because of the turmoil that has gone on in D.C. this week. 
and you feel and act as if Jesus were not enthroned. And the way you react, the way you speak, the way you just respond to that wickedness. There is nothing that heals and there is nothing that refreshes you and gives you joy like a fresh view of the love of Christ, the warmth of Christ for you, even in your little tantrums. (laughs) The love of Christ for you penetrates and gives joy. And so, uh, come home again. (laughs) Come home to the kiss of God who awaits you every morning. Let us pray. Lord, we, um, we are uh, so um, amazed um, at um, what you are like. Um, in many respects, we would have to say you are outside of our normal experience. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to bring uh, these words of, of comfort to us and these words that actually stiffen our spines for obedience. We pray these things in your precious name. Anyone here in the hearing of my voice who has not uh, known that God is like this, that he is full of compassion for the sinners because of Christ, would your spirit work in their hearts in order to bring about a, a, a turning to Jesus for life and for love? and for keeps. For in the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen.